If you're playing the game just a minute, one of the ways you can get out is through repetition. But if you're talking or writing a letter to somebody and you want to stress that something is really quite important, one of the ways you can do it is through repetition. So when Paul repeats a phrase in the space of four verses in his letter to the Ephesians, we can conclude that he's not playing just a minute. He hasn't lost his train of thought. There is something he wants to say that matters. There's a point he wants to get across. Something he wants people to remember and to take on board. And that phrase that he repeats is the simple declaration By grace, you have been saved. Says it in verse 5 at the end of a sentence which starts in the preceding verse. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then again in verses 8 to 9. For it is... By grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're saved by grace, not by works. Salvation is something that God does for us, not that we can do by ourselves. Not a matter of our own works, our own achievements, our own goodness. It's not what we can do. We need God's intervention to save us in his grace, in his great love for us, in the richness of his mercy, which means that he treats us far better than we deserve. That's what grace is about. And this this is the essence of the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ that God has done for us what we could never hope to do for ourselves. He has saved us by giving his son to die for us on a cross, taking our sin and its consequences upon himself to restore that broken image of God and save us by his grace. And that applies to all of us here, without exception. God doesn't provide his grace as a kind of a plan B, as if most of us can probably make it, and just for those who don't quite come up to the mark, there's that kind of safety net that's been provided. No, all of us, Every single one of us here, from the most respectable and morally upright of us, all the way down to the no-hopers and the complete moral failures, we are all saved on exactly the same basis of God's grace. No exceptions. How can we be so sure? Well, because Paul makes the point quite specifically and clearly. We're saved by grace and not by works so that nobody can boast, he says. If I am saved, 
on the basis of my works, by the, by the good and upright way I lead my life. And you, miserable sinner that you are, are saved by grace. That means that I can look down on you for my position of moral superiority. I can count myself a cut above you. But Paul says no. There is no room for that. There's no space for that within God's economy. That's never going to happen. There is no boasting. There is no moral high ground. There, there are no privileged statuses that we can claim. All of us, from the best of us to the worst, are saved by God's grace and God's grace alone. Not of works. There's no boasting. And right at the start of the chapter, Paul undercuts the traditional distinctions between the good guys and the bad guys. At the start of the chapter, he adopts the tone and the perspective of a righteous, law-abiding Jew, one of God's people, giving their assessment of the plight of the godless and sinful Gentiles. As for you... Well, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Who's the ruler of the kingdom of the air? Who's the spirit now at work in in the sons of those of disobedience? It's not altogether clear and it doesn't altogether matter because it's not the one true and living God. So of course you lot are sinful because you neither know nor worship nor honour nor obey the supreme God who is Lord of all. If you don't know God, how can you be expected to keep his laws? Everybody knew that false religion was a sure source of moral corruption and laxity. So if you follow anything but the one true God, you are bound to end up being a moral failure. You are as good as dead in your transgressions and sins. Forget about any idea of God weighing your good deeds in one side of the scales and your bad deeds in the other and kind of weighing them up and if one comes out heavier than the other then you might be alright or not as the case may be. You are off the scale. Dead in your sins, you are nothing more than spiritual zombies. But, and this is the surprising bit, in verse 3 he stops talking about you lot and starts talking about himself and his fellow law-abiding, God-honouring Jews. And he says, we're, we're no better. We lived among you, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We, like you, were equally subject to God's anger. See, the problem isn't what God we worship. The problem isn't how much of the law we manage to keep. The problem is who we are. The word the New International Version there translates sinful nature, simply the word flesh. It simply means what it is to be merely human. Paul wasn't one to believe in the essential goodness of human nature. If you pick it apart, he would say that our natural desires and thoughts are not particularly loving, kind or altruistic. Those qualities have to be taught and learned against the grain of human nature. If you allow children to do whatever they want, 
From a very early age, you're going to find all sorts of behaviour issues arising as they get older. Because children don't naturally grow up to be loving and kind and considerate and helpful and unselfish. Left to our own devices, all kinds of unpleasant stuff bubble up to the surface. Good moral values and civilising qualities need to be instilled and learned. They don't come naturally or necessarily easy to any of us. Our own natural inclination is to be quite selfish. To put our own desires and wants before those of other people. Some of us may be better than others at keeping our self-centeredness under control, but the problem essentially is not what we do. The problem essentially is, is what we are underneath. The damaged image of God. And if you scratch the thin veneer that covers civilization and expose what lies beneath, human nature can be a pretty ugly thing. This time last year, the snow came. You might remember it. The response was a frenzied stampede of panic buying that emptied the supermarkets of bread, fruit, vegetables, and other essentials. Normal people suddenly saying, if supplies are limited, I'm not going to be the one to go without. And I will stockpile to make sure I don't go without, even if it means that others do. When the current global financial crisis broke in 2007, I remember hearing one commentator saying, it's all just fear and greed. The twin things driving the whole financial meltdown. Fear and and greed. Basic facets of human motivation. Greed is labelled as one of the seven deadly sins, which between them summarise the basic human traits that lie beneath most, if not all, of wrongdoing. Greed, overindulgence, lust, laziness, envy, pride, and anger. I suspect most of us can recognise one or two of those at least in the way that we are. The problem is not what I do, The problem is who I am. And yet, and this is the miracle of God's grace, God loves the real me. The one that's underneath it all. The naturally inconsiderate, self-indulgent, angry, unforgiving person I am on the inside. That person who suddenly slips out when I let my guard down or on a bad day. The person who's hard to love, the person who doesn't deserve forgiving. This is the person. This is the person who's dead in their sins, whom Jesus came to save. To be one with us in our humanity. Because in Jesus, God does identify with us 100%. The holy God identifying himself with sinful human beings in all our unloveliness and degradation. We are dead in our sins, so Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. Becoming completely one with us in our sinfulness, in our humanity, in our isolation from God, in our death. He becomes one with us, so that united with him, we can be raised to life with him so that we could be lifted up and seated with him in the heavenly places. That that is what it means to be saved. 
It is to be lifted up from the depths of who I am to the heights of where Christ is. Jesus gives us our lives back. We're no longer dominated by powers and habits or past patterns of behaviour that we cannot change. We are lifted above all that. Seated in the heavenly realms where we don't deserve to be, but where Jesus is Lord and Lord of who we are. We can't change ourselves, but he changes us. We can't save ourselves, but he saves us. We can't cheat death, but he delivers us from death and brings us into eternal life. And because all those things we can't do, but he can do and has done, it is all a matter of his grace, of his boundless mercy to us, of the love which he has for us, which is beyond our deserving, but which he lavishes upon us all the same. And how do we avail ourselves of this mercy and love and grace? Quite simply, by faith. Remember how Paul ends that second statement about how we are saved? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Christians have always been known as believers. The whole point is that salvation is not about how good we are or how well we perform in the moral stakes. It's about trusting that God gave his son to die on the cross for me. And by entrusting my life to him, he does for me what I could never do for myself. He saves me. Bottom line, being a Christian is all about believing in Jesus as our Saviour and our Lord. Faith. It's not a matter of believing right things about Jesus, of signing up to this or that statement of faith. These things are important because if you're going to trust Jesus, you need to know who it is you're putting your trust in. But what saves us is what Jesus has done for us and the readiness to recognise and accept that we are saved only. We are saved completely through him, through his unconditional love, through his complete forgiveness, through his death and resurrection. Unconditional love, forgiveness, eternal life, these are his gifts to you. You can't deserve them, you can't earn them, you can't merit them, you can only accept them as a gift of his grace to believe Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. Jesus forgives me. Jesus wants to take charge of my life and, 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 and bring me into his kingdom. Jesus is the one who lifts me up from death to eternal life. He's the only one who can do it. He's the only one who has done it. And faith is saying, Jesus, thank you for dying to take my sin. Thank you for rising again to give me eternal life. Thank you for being my saviour. 
I give my life to you. It is by grace that you are saved through faith. Nothing to do with us. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast.